0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan Beale, and this is the ASB Investment Podcast, a show that keeps you up to date on the market and helps you make smart choices with your investments. We've got some very special guests lined up for you today. Joining us from across the ditch is David Griffith and Jason Collins from the world's largest asset manager, BlackRock. Today, we'll talk about who BlackRock are and what they do, along with how they support investors. They'll share their views on what's happening in the markets how you can build resilience into portfolios and how to react to the rollercoaster ride that is Trump's Twitter feed. These are entirely our own views. It's not investment advice, but we know plenty of experts at ASB that'll be happy to chat if you need. Well, welcome to uh, Jason and David into the into the booth in Ponsonby. Um, I'm really uh, I'm really excited to have you two in here because uh, our relationship with BlackRock goes on for a number of years. But to get you two in a in a booth and start talking about what's going around the world and get our customers to understand a bit more about BlackRock is really uh, really cool. So firstly, let let's start with a big thank you. Uh, but I might sort of start with you, Jason, just to tell us a little bit about your role at BlackRock and what do you do, and uh, and then we can move on from there.
1: Thanks, uh, Jonathan. It's um, good to see you. Uh, I look after the commercial relationships for BlackRock in Australia and New Zealand. Um, And essentially, that means dealing with uh, governments, um, large insurers, asset managers, uh, banks, right through to financial planners uh, in Australia, Um, here more the wholesale clients, um, and in that role, uh, look after all kinds of investments on behalf of our clients, ranging from illiquid investments, hedge funds, uh, passive investments, active investments... Uh, right through to our technology, which um, which deals with um, primarily portfolio construction and risk.
2: And uh, David, tell us a little bit about your role. Yeah, sure. So I head up an investment strategy for our multi-asset strategies team uh, for Australia. So I'm in the investment team and specifically looking after multi-asset. So within multi-asset, what we try to do is deliver outcomes for clients, whether that's, uh, say, for example, a growth outcome or an income outcome, or producing some sort of total return outcome for clients. It's really all about blending different asset classes together to achieve a more efficient outcome for clients.
0: In my preamble, I talked about BlackRock, largest fund manager in the world. But just to give us a bit of a concept, what does that actually mean for someone who actually works in BlackRock? Are you you the biggest, and uh, how does that sort of resonate with you?
1: Yeah, we are the uh, largest asset manager in the world. We manage nearly $7 trillion of assets, uh, which is a huge number, obviously. How many zeros is that? That's. uh... I'm not so good with zeros. <laughs> ironically, um, yeah, it's an incredible story. The firm started 30 years ago um, with I think seven or eight founders, um, most of which are still involved with the organisation in some shape or form, either on the executive committee or the board. So it's a founder-driven firm. Uh, you imagine 30 years ago, many other asset managers around the world, you know, existed long before that, um, and Blackrock really has grown incredibly uh, across the world in that period of time. Um, And it's done it in a few ways, mainly through technology. Uh, It's done it through incredible scale. Um, And I think, you know, it was very judicious in the way that it approached risk um, right from the outset. Um, And as a result, you know, when the global financial crisis came through, uh, you know, whenever that was, two thousand and Dave? 2008. 2008, yeah. When it came through, BlackRock just was in a very strong position. And uh, as a few other asset managers came under pressure, BlackRock acquired, probably the largest acquisition was Barclays Global Investors, yep. uh, which at the time had an, an organization called iShares within it, uh, which is a large ETF provider. And so when we took over that organization, really the business grew from strength to strength.
0: Some people say so, you know, large doesn't mean the best and stuff. But I suppose the one thing we've been really impressed with at ASB around with BlackRock is sort of the the purpose and the values of the organization. How has that come about and how does that sort of demonstrate itself?
1: Yeah, so we've always been very clear in the areas in which we play. Um, and primarily it's as a fiduciary. So everything we do is on behalf of clients. We don't own distribution ourselves we don't invest our own balance sheet in investments. Occasionally, we might cornerstone an investment, particularly in the private equity space. But unlike other people, we're not a vertically integrated organisation. So we're completely aligned to the clients that we've got and we're only as good as our service and performance. And if we can't maintain that service or performance, we'll lose the asset. So that $7 trillion is not money that we manage for ourselves. It's money we manage on behalf of clients like ASB.
2: I would probably add to that as well, Jason, just in terms of the culture, just from an investment team perspective, um, we've always had a culture focused on risk management. And if you think about Aladdin, um, our risk um, and portfolio management system, that's really at the core of our risk management culture. Um, so really, everyone, at least from the PM perspective, focused on managing risk in the portfolio, understanding what the risks are in portfolios, um, and managing that um, that client experience is, is really important for us.
0: Now, we're, we're looking at, with BlackRock around Aladdin, just maybe give us a little bit of a uh, a bit of a view on it. It's it's around understanding the risks within your portfolio and giving you a bunch so you can make b- better, smarter decisions. Is that sort of a high level view.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think primarily it's an operating system for investment management. Yeah. Uh, so investment managers, BlackRock and other external e- investment managers uh, use Aladdin to to run the full end to end process around portfolio management, placing trades, um, post execution, and then at the end of it. You can look at a portfolio from a bottom-up security level to understand what you own and then you take it a further step and do some scenario analysis around, you know, if the Fed was to raise rates by a certain amount or reduce rates, you know, what might happen in that scenario. So it's, um, it, it, at, its at its peak, it's a very uh, complicated system for really large investment management organisations and then simplistically it can break down just exposure, uh, exposures that a portfolio might have to help portfolio managers better understand what they're dealing with day to day.
0: And so your your investment management there in your team, So just give us a bit of a view. How many, is that a large team,
2: a small team, or how many globally would be an investment management team? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so in our team in Australia, we have a team of seven people. Uh, mixing between portfolio managers and strategists like myself. Um, but globally, obviously, we're a bit large asset manager, so we have hundreds of investment professionals globally. Um, so I sit with part of a broader multi asset platform. So, what we try to do in here, in this region down here, is really deliver the whole platform to our investors, uh, both in New Zealand and, and Australia. Um, but I sit within a, a much broader team of around 200 people globally that sit within um, multi asset. And do you do you? I suppose you must be sharing information globally all the time. About all the time, yeah. yeah. There's lots of there's lots of late night conference calls, yeah. early morning VCs. Um, you know, we have offices all around the world. The thing that I find really, really beneficial for us as investors down here, because we are so far away, I can pick up the phone and call anyone in any country um, and get a a run through of what's been happening from their perspective. Um, There's the daily global call that portfolio managers uh, participate in every day. um, So we can get a a lowdown on all the topics um, that are being discussed, the topical and market. So for me, it's a really good resource. And being being able just to still have that connectivity um, with the other investment teams is really helpful when we're investing here locally. Yeah, locally yeah. Yeah. And so you were recently
0: uh, this morning talking to some ASB customers uh, at a, an event, which was which was awesome. I you talked about some of the sort of things that you're focusing on and BlackRock are thinking about, and some of the risks. Maybe we'll start with sort of. Uh, what are some of the high-level things that are keeping you uh, mind-occupied at the moment?
2: Yeah, so it's very clear in the last, uh, say, the last 18 months or so, um, this whole issue around protectionism and uh, U.S.-China trade, um, that's really having an impact on both market sentiment uh, in markets. Um, you can see the sort of gyrations in market sentiment when yep. Trump tweets uh, additional measures in terms of tariffs. Um uh, but it goes beyond that. So we're, we're now starting to see that actually flow through and have an impact on underlying economic growth. So a lot of our leading indicators that we look at um, are starting to soften a bit. Um, but pleasingly, our view of the world is that um, you know we're not entering a recession period. Remember, markets got a bit scared in Q4 last year, and they started to price in the risk of recession. Um, Our view was very much, no, it's steady as she goes. Yes, we are seeing a softening in in growth, um, but we do not see the level of excesses that were there back in 2007, 2008 that caused the the global financial crisis. Um, So that's sort of one theme is that sort of impacting markets. The second theme that is on a positive side is that we have seen um, central banks react to that slowdown in growth, um, particularly the Fed. Um, we have just saw the ECB last week, c- cutting rates. Uh, you've also had rate cuts here in New Zealand, yep. uh, and we've also had rate cuts in Australia as well. So most of the central banks around the world are recognising the, the bit of a slowdown that we're seeing um, and, and reacting to that. So where we are in this economic cycle, we describe it as a late-stage economic cycle, and, um, you know, you can look through time and look and see how long these late stage cycles last for somewhere between a year to three years. Uh, our view with central banks coming in and being a bit more dovish around policy, that will only aid to extend this, this economic cycle, which has already been a very long uh, economic cycle. So you can combine those two things. You've sort of got a lot of risks out there. I mean, trade war is just one of them. Obviously, we've got... Um, uh, political conflicts rising with um, with Iran um, and other things, um, spike in oil prices. Um, these are all having an impact. Um, you've got central banks being, you know, reacting to that. So, and because we're late late cycle, we're sort of um, thinking about our own portfolios and what to do in our own portfolios. And we've got this theme of resilience. How can you build some more resilience um, in in your portfolios? We've all experienced some pretty strong returns from markets, I would say, in the last few years. Um, You know, we would think that we need to be a bit more modest in terms of our return expectations going forward.
0: There seems to be a view in New Zealand, I don't know if you're seeing it globally, that share markets have had such a... Good run or great run? I think New Zealand market is probably the best performing market in the last sort of twelve months, mm-hmm. uh, and people are sort of going, "Oh, well, it's got to come to an end and stuff." But are you
2: still quite optimistic about equity markets going forward? I guess you can look at a few different measures. I mean, obviously, look at valuations in markets. Um, and if you look at sort of MSCI world or US equities, I mean, valuations are a little bit higher than, than the long run, but um, not egregiously high. Um, and, and we're still seeing earnings coming through a little bit softer than what they were through, um, through the last couple of years, but still, still quite positive. Um, and I guess the key thing to look at, if you look if you're a long-term investor, if you look at the equity risk premium in each of these different markets, which is basically looking at your earnings yield, you're getting from the earnings from the, from, from the, from the stock market relative to bond yields, which are, we all know are now historic lows, we're still getting 4 or 5% equity um, risk premium. So if you're a long-term investor, there's not too many other places in the world where you can pick up 5 or 6% earnings yield, and you can still get that from equities. So we would say, absolutely, we, we still prefer owning equities over bonds, but in a multi-asset portfolio, having a blend of those is is, uh, is, is beneficial. And One of the key indicators that we look at when we are building multi-asset portfolios is the correlation between equities and bonds. And um, we've enjoyed negative correlations between equities and bonds in the last couple of decades, um, which has been quite positive for building these portfolios. But um, that's something that we're watching quite closely.
0: So that's always been sort of the the approach that a good portfolio will have some equities and you have some bonds and they'll be correlate differently and that's actually a positive to the way you can manage your risk. You say that that's maybe coming together a little bit or how, so where guess, are you going with that?
2: Yeah, so I guess what I'm saying is that if you look prior to the last couple of decades, the correlations between equities and bonds are actually um, positive. So you're getting less, ben- less diversification benefit from holding them in the portfolio. The key issue we're thinking about now is like we we get asked a lot about you know bond yields so low do they still have a role in a portfolio yeah and we would say yes bonds still have a role in the portfolio I think we we would need to think about which bonds you'd like to own in this context yeah so we we would say we you still need defensiveness in a portfolio bonds can still play that role but we need to be conscious of um you know the capital appreciation from here yeah clearly if we are thinking that yields are going to start backing up. Um, then um, that can be quite painful on the other side. But um, from a longer term perspective, we think longer term yields are going to remain anchored. Um, So having bonds in the portfolio, um, we think is still beneficial. But we are starting to think beyond bonds and what other asset classes can play a role uh, in portfolios to add that sort of defensiveness in there.
0: And quality, I suppose, becomes really more important. So you can go chasing some high-yielding bonds, but then the quality, I imagine, is going to be pretty poor. Thinking
2: it exactly. So going in this stage, particularly in the late cycle, um, uh, going up in quality. So we find a lot of our fixed income portfolios are going up in quality in each of those different segments and being mindful of risk. If you think about how to get yield or returns in a portfolio compared to, say, 10 years ago, you really need to push up the risk spectrum to get the equivalent level of yield in portfolio. So just really being conscious and understanding what those risks are, uh, measuring them. And managing those risks is really important in this phase of the, of the cycle.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And now, Jason, uh, I think BlackRock came to New Zealand what, back in 2013, I think we were saying earlier,
1: was it? Yeah, we, um, we, we had a nascent relationship yeah. with the Sovereign Fund in 2013, and then we started to really actively engage in the market, um, develop that relationship, and off the back of that really grew a broad business, and ASB was one of our yeah. first largest clients outside of the Sovereign Fund.
0: And what, and what was what was it about New Zealand that Blackwell thought, hey, this is an area and a, and a place that we want to come?
1: Well, at the time, and I remember coming to Auckland um, in 2013, and I'd looked at our customer relationship um, database. And the previous year, we'd had very little engagement in New Zealand. I came to Auckland and was sort of struck with um, some of the building activity and thought, we just haven't really paid enough attention to this market. And uh, for those people that um, uh, follow the, the investment markets globally, New Zealand Super has always been an organisation that's been revered by other governments around the world. So I wanted to, to learn the organisation a little bit better. Then I just saw a lot of opportunity. You know? I think the economy was at a turning point um, and it turned to be the case. Um, and then we've just had a lot of support from uh, private banks, um, from the multi-managers of the large banks as well. Um, and what's what's been really surprising to me is the way that um, ETFs uh, have sort of taken off among New Zealand investors. Um, and one reason for that is I think the broking market in New Zealand's always been very strong. Uh, you know, if you look at Australia, a lot of the financial planners came out of the life insurance sector, whereas in New Zealand, you've got just a very strong broking community, a real affiliation to listed securities. Um, and New Zealanders were very happy to invest offshore and do that via listed securities through... Um, through offshore ETFs um, and, you know, smart shares in New Zealand, which is part of the New Zealand Stock Exchange, has also facilitated wrapping up some of those structures in, in local structures as well.
0: We have started to see, there was an article of the weekend, um, starting to see a, a real shift from sort of the old broking model to the, um, funds under management model and moving to a sort of more wealth management. And I think if you go back sort of ten years, there was broking, broking, and it was sort of oh no, funds management isn't for me. But I think as we move and advice becomes more and more important, actually investing in multi asset portfolio seems to be where a lot of the industry in New Zealand is starting to starting to move. I don't know if you, what are you seeing in Australia is that sort of a. It's certainly
1: moved that way in Australia, um, but the heritage of the, of the organisations are different. It's different. Yeah, I'd say it's um, it is moving here a little bit as well, but but really it comes. Down to it can be an advice thing, but it's an execution point. And what's the easiest point of execution? Um, What's interesting to me is in New Zealand the exposure that you have to international asset classes. People are more willing to be passive than they are active, Um, and I think that's really wise because you know if you're if you've got a small research team in New Zealand, it's really hard to pick um, active managers um, from here, Uh, and so that's what we've noticed a little bit more. I think in Australia, people are more are more um, interested in active exposures. Um, it's just an interesting difference.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I suppose I, like I've been super impressed with BlackRock and in our relationships uh, early early days, and you managed our sort of um, global equities and, and global property, and we're looking at other things that we can do together. But I think when we first got together with BlackRock... Um, the thing that struck us was just the sort of alignment of purpose, the alignment of value of that and the focus on the customer. It really came through massively strongly. And ever since in our relationship, that's been really, really key. I suppose when you're the size that you are, you can probably decide who you want to do business with, you don't have to do business with everybody. Is there sort of a philosophy like that at BlackRock that this is the type of organisation we want to work with and we want to partner with?
1: Yeah, I think it's particularly true in New Zealand. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, New Zealand is so far away from the global capital market centres of the world. And so to really be effective in portfolio construction and managing money, you need to have global IP partners. Uh, and so part of the premise of the relationship was you, you um, allocated some passive exposures to BlackRock. And we like to say we we gave you the keys to the castle, and so whenever you travel around the world, you go into offices and really leverage that relationship as much as possible to the benefit of your investors.
0: Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in uh, UK recently and in the BlackRock head office there and stuff, and it's pretty impressive. Like we'd been to a few other offices, and then we walked into the BlackRock one, and everyone was like. Whoa! This is serious. This is like Premier <laughs> Premier League now. And you like, managed to find it. It's quite a hard. Yeah, it was quite to a find. hard place to find. Yeah, yeah. it. Like Google Maps is quite helpful. But, yeah. um and then it was just you guys have lots of pencils. The thing I noticed, like pencil with BlackRock written on it. There was just like tubs and tubs. We don't see so, those. Just you don't clients see that? get we, the pencils. We buy our own pencils. I've got, I've got loads of your <laughs> Blackwell pencils. They're awesome. <laughs> uh, to, hey, now, I just to rather than just talk about pencils, maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the global challenges that are ahead, maybe, um, and with your yeah. strategy hat on, mm. what are some of the things that, uh, sort of, that we should be thinking about?
2: Yeah, for sure. Look, I think the, the key thing for us is, you know, um, look, I think short-term, it seems we're okay. Um, I guess one of the things that we're focused on is policy, and uh, particularly monetary policy, and how much ammunition is left there. If you think about the central banks globally, um, you know they've been trying to get back into a more normal situation with their monetary policy. Typically, at this stage of the cycle, you would start to see um, inflation start coming back to the inflation target of the central bank. So typically, most central banks will target a 2% inflation or have some band around 2%. And we're just not seeing that this in this economic cycle. Um, so, you know, and central banks haven't been able to raise interest rates back to a high level such that when the next crisis comes, They've got some ammunition there to cut rates. Now, the Fed is, is kind of there. Uh, they have been, you know, scaling back their quantitative easing and they've been increasing interest rates. Um, and then so they have got some ammunition there to, to cut rates and they already have started to do so. Um, but if you look around the world, I mean, who would have thought 1% cash rates here in New Zealand, 1% cash rates in Australia, uh, heading possibly lower. Um, you've got negative interest rates um, in Europe. Um, so central banks really need to start getting a bit more creative um, you know, again, the ECB starting to do asset purchases, unlimited asset purchases, 20, 20 billion a month. Um, what sort of incremental impact is that going to have on growth? So really starting to think more broadly, I think policymakers really need to combine and think about both the monetary policy side, but also fiscal, um, uh, to sort of stave off any sort of future downturn that we might see. So we, 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 do worry a bit about, um, you know, what happens next. Yeah. And what other levers
0: could Governments pull, so they've got the central banks. Uh, here in New Zealand, we've got one percent interest rates. There is only so far they can go. There is not much yeah. room. What, what, what sort I mean, of things could they be doing?
2: So, I mean, there's, so there is some central banks which have, you know, obviously doing asset purchases, um, the ECB and the BOJ, and we've had quantitative easing from the Fed, um, but yet to be done by other central banks like RBNZ and, and RBA. Um, but there is an increasing sort of topic of discussion within central banks around should we be doing more asset purchases. What what purchases should we should we be buying equities broad, broadly, um, similar to what the BoJ have been doing. Um, so and then thinking about being coordinated between monetary and fiscal policy, trying to facilitate that. I mean, central banks tend to be independent from the government, um, but maybe that ne- that nexus may be changing, um, and maybe it needs to change so that there's coordination between um, both monetary and fiscal. So these are the topics that we've been discussing and bouncing about, and. Yeah. And not to say this is going to happen, but um, these are the sort of next step discussions that we think central banks will be starting to have.
0: And how much involvement does BlackRock have with central banks? Like, do you get invited in to talk to the Fed or, or or not? Or do you get to speak to politicians or presidents? How, did, how does that work with uh, BlackRock? Have you, you got a...
1: Well, I think... Um, you on
0: speed dial? <laughs> no,
1: I wouldn't say <laughs> one speed dial. We're a very large investor globally. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. Uh, policymakers like to... Hear our views on markets, like to hear our views on market structure. Um, but you know, it's a pretty regulated world, um, and so preferential access is um, is not something that's generally granted. But it's it's more a case of um, you know the things we observe in markets, the things we um, are interested in, uh, is often things that uh, regulators and policymakers want to hear. But I wouldn't say it's a, anything exclusive.
2: Yeah, I would have thought they would said. Been- come and talk to we, you much, way Yeah, way we, d- we do have some senior investors that are on some of the policy um okay. decision making committees um so there's a role there that we play yeah yeah so it's something that we do do
0: awesome now normally in this booth i have chris Tennant brown and um we can't have a podcast without him talking about donald trump and so um i just wondered whether you guys were pointing at jason that uh, maybe maybe um how much time do it, do a, fund, a fund manager or asset manager like BlackRock spend on someone like Donald Trump and what he's, like Chris talks about the tweets and all that type of stuff. Is it is it noise or, is it, or do you take a much more interest in it?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you need to keep on top of it because it's not just noise because when he tweets, it's actually policy tweets and he's imposing yeah. tariffs. I mean, who would have thought like policy being conducted on Twitter? Yeah. You know, certainly it's something that, you know, you, you try to have a big picture perspective, You uh, assess the information as it comes in each day um, and you try to work out the implications of that new information and whether or not it's a real, going to have an impact on economic growth. End of the day, we're a fundamental manager and a fundamentals change, you need to react to that. And that's the sort of structure and that's how you build an investment team and investment processes around fundamentals.
0: Okay. And Jason, I think our... Relationship with BlackRock started uh, when it coincided with the uh, sort of cluster munitions media and stuff around Kiwi savers and potentially investing in things that um, we certainly shouldn't be investing in. And uh, our timing was pretty good. Actually, we moved over to, to BlackRock. So that sort of stewardship of money and client money is obviously a, a big focus of ASB and with support of BlackRock. What sort of things do BlackRock? do to help and support like the, uh, sort of your customers or relationships?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, contribution that New Zealand as a country has made to the investment community because uh, a lot of the exclusions that ASB has asked us to make out of the portfolios we run, um, and for that matter, the various sovereign entities um, in New Zealand have, have spread around the world. So you started out with, um, you know, ex-ammunitions, um, um, ex-tobacco um, and there's a big focus on climate policy as well. So um, I'd say that New Zealand has certainly um, reached out to the rest of the world and you've seen the first mandate exclusions occur in New Zealand and now they're really taking place in Australia and they're sort of spreading all around the world. Uh, it's quite interesting. Um, we call stewardship the engagement we have with organisations um, on behalf of our shareholders – um, and as I said, New Zealand's been a leader there. Our global head of stewardship is actually a New Zealander. Oh wow! So she's advising, um, you know, our senior leadership um, globally on policies um, and the way we should interact with companies. And our head of stewardship in Australia, New Zealand's actually in New Zealand at the moment, seeing uh, chairs of various boards and having discussions around topics such as diversity and inclusion, uh, remuneration policies. And what we tend to do is find out best practice around the world and. If I could distill into one thing, it's probably purpose. Yeah. So what we're asking organizations to do is really identify their purpose, uh, their long-term goals. Um, and we find that if purpose is, is very well articulated um, to the investment community, then, um, then then companies become more investable.
0: It's interesting because the bank have moved to purpose, and with Victoria starting as the CEO and, and saying, you know, we've got a... What is actually ASB here for? It's been here for 172 years. It's going to be here for another 172 years. But why are we here? And what part are we playing in ASB for our customers? So it's a really a very fresh and different way of thinking about it. But it's a very similar, I suppose, to the way we think about managing money around what our are our beliefs. And we have sort of six investment beliefs that we, you, know, you guys will know really well. But it actually gives you a sort of, it almost gives you that framework, doesn't it, to, to make decisions on how you're going to do stuff. That's basically similar to the way
2: that BlackRock think about how you how you do stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, we have a, some principles that we have embedded, yeah. and being a fiduciary to our clients is, is probably the biggest one. And that's how, you know, clients trust their, trust their money with us, knowing that we're going to be a fiduciary to that money. Um, but then we also have addition, like the culture at BlackRock I really like, because there's you know, other principles that are embedded from Larry and the the executive committee down around being a passionate about performance, being innovators, and this concept of one BlackRock working together yeah. um, is really important.
0: Now, I've always wanted to ask this question of people from BlackRock or any fund managers and stuff that actually, and it's a bit personal really because I'm trying to think of what my two kids could do. And uh, how do you like how do you end up working for a company like BlackRock and become an investment strategist? How, what's the path you've taken to to get there, dude? How have you... Wow, Okay, That's coming back a bit.
2: So I I started off as a chartered accountant to start with. And then I realized that wasn't for me. Okay. So um, I applied for a job at uh, Bankers Trust. And then I worked my way into the investment team. um, And then um, I was working in the fixed income and currency team as a risk analyst. um, And then uh, we we were trading a book of, of, of active currency. And at that point in time, active currency was really taking off in Europe. So we decided to move our team over to London. And um, I worked with that particular group there for for a period of time, and then uh, I found my way over to BGI Barclays Global Investors. So I came to BlackRock via BGI Ah, uh, in London. Ah. Yeah. So coming back to Sydney, it was a new, fresh team, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed sort of my stints both overseas and and coming back here.
0: My sister-in-law used to work for Barclays. Global, yeah.
2: sure, yeah, and then said, Oh,
0: Black Rock above her. who's Black Rock? And, and then now, suddenly, wow, it's like it's just really, really how things change in a short space of time. Absolutely, huh? yeah. but, uh, yeah. What about you, Jason? How do you? Dizzy well, Heights. Well,
1: I was a bit of a lost soul, uh, <laughs> fair to say. And uh, how long do
2: you have? It's like,
0: <laughs> here we go.
1: I, I didn't really start working till my late twenties. Um, you know, I mean, if if those is that when you were a
0: professional surfer, or
1: I was doing all kinds of things. You know, planting trees in Canada, and and uh, I won't even I won't even go to some of the other roles. But um. But, you know, those that, that are old enough will remember in 92, 93, it was pretty tough and it was a recession in Australia in that time and youth unemployment was really high. So I just travelled. I just travelled, did the odd job and learnt languages and um, came back to Australia, started out working as a journalist, a financial markets journalist. Oh, wow. uh, And that was... And my career sort of went sideways. I, so, I think my view is... Um, Follow your passion and find people that you really believe in. So I never really looked at an organisation or a role. I came across Blackrock because I really believed in a few individuals there. Um, was happy to take any role that that came along at the time, and um, and have followed those people. And I think those people are really um, reflective of the organisation in general.
0: Yeah, that's really good advice actually, because I I'm similar. I fell into financial services. I never. I remember years ago seeing a careers officer when I was about fifteen. Uh, Mr. Price, I can remember his name, and he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to be a record producer. And he goes, "You'll never be a record producer. No one from this school will ever be a record producer." And I'm like, "You've just shattered my dreams." And uh, uh, and now I just thought, now working for a bank actually uh, wasn't my wasn't my ideal, but I just wanted to work with people I enjoyed working with. I wanted to focus on things I enjoyed and those types of things. Actually, you end up doing the role that you actually love every single day of the week. It like, sounds like what you guys you guys do as well. And the thing I've been most impressed with BlackRock is every single person I've met with BlackRock just seems a generally nice person and actually is there to help and want to support and stuff. So um, we might just leave it at that and say, thank you very much, Jason and David. It's been a pleasure to have you here. I know you're only in New Zealand for a short time, so to spend... 40 minutes in a hot room talking uh, talking to us has been uh, a real great pleasure and thank you for your continued support of ASB and I think together ASB and Blackhawk can do some really cool things in the future for our customers so thank you very much. Thanks Jonathan and thanks to your clients. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Cheers very much. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the ASB Investment Podcast. If you have any thoughts on today's episode or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on future shows, please fire your suggestions through to podcasts at asb.co.nz.